get ready, folks. National TV Jazz coming up as they've got a matinee against the Lakers. And today they have a matinee against the Pacers. Covering both here on Round Ball Roundup on UtahJazz.com. I'm JP Chunga. Amin El Hassan. Levitard Show, and also SiriusXM NBA joins us in just a moment to talk about the latest with the team and around the league, as we got a couple of good podcasts for you. And I hope you're also catching, on the postgame show, voice match to a face. I'm going to be on it. Catch my mean mug in between postgame sound of Alema and Thurl Bailey, or sometimes Mike Smith, after the game against the Pacers. Cool opportunity to infiltrate post-game show and, heck, infiltrate some of these interviews. If you're in Utah or have access to AT&T Sports Rocky Mountain Utah Jazz, find the post-game show. Check it out. Podcast brought to you by Bailey's Moving and Storage. We move you every step of the way, near or far, big or small. It's Bailey's Moving and Storage. Okay, since the last time we spoke... Phoenix and Washington, the losses as they pick up wins against the Kings, the Thunder, and the Trailblazers. I think the major concern over that stretch, and, and the thing that I want to highlight before we get to Amin, we also talk about it with him, so it gets delved deeper, and, and he gives his opinion to it, is mid-range game. If you want to be upset about regular season losses, sure, that's okay, that's fine, completely natural. The thing about the regular season that I continue to stress here on this program and elsewhere when I talk to people is that, one, the Jazz are pushing for that one seed, and difference between one and two seed-wise is how much that the Jazz put into this work during the regular season what they could do. Now, they're going to start resting some guys, but they have a very easy schedule down the stretch. The only big one is going to be against the Phoenix Suns at the end of the month. Otherwise, you're avoiding LeBron and AD against the Lakers this weekend, and all the marquee matchups are against teams that are lower in the standings. They're good matchups for the Jazz. You look at the standings and how things match up, and first round, Jazz can handle either the Warriors, the Grizzlies, Pelicans, if in Luca's wildest nightmare it becomes the Mavericks as he's not a fan of the play-in game, if they drop down, that still is an advantage for the Jazz. They are still better than those teams, no matter the loss that they had last week. But the big concern comes second round, third round, when you're playing these teams that are better and more advanced, and the major concern is the mid-range game. How are the Jazz going to address teams that put Rudy Gobert in pick and roll and are okay getting to the spot in the mid-range and shooting that shot? Like Chris Paul did it to Rudy in the game last time out against the Suns, and you saw how many people were so quick to jump on Jazz or frauds when they watch national TV. Expect that on Saturday if they go down at any point to the Lakers just the cavalcade of people ready to call the Jazz frauds because this is the only game that they watch. But to people who actually watch the games, this is just two really good teams playing each other. It's an entertaining regular season battle. About as good as it gets. The mid-range teams, once you get to the second round, Kawhi is an expert at it. 
LeBron and AD are experts at it. We have to redefine what's the bad shot. I know advanced basketball has had us thinking mid-range jumpers, they're bad, but they're bad if you're not good at them. And it's what we had last time when we talked to Skin Wade about how if you get to your spots, that can become a good shot. If you're shooting at just a, a terrible clip at 40%, just average NBA player taking a mid-range jumper, no, of course not. But for Chris Paul, when he's attacking Rudy, that's his spot. He's a master of the mid-range. Then Russ did it against Rudy late in the game, and he had success with it. Look at how the Jazz defense is built. It's to give up those shots. They're okay with that because most teams can't shoot well there. But against Washington, they shot 50% from the mid-range. And against Phoenix, Sun shot 46%. Those numbers according to Clean the Glass. And what have the Jazz given up all season in the mid-range? 40%. So if you're shooting above the clip and... They're stepping in your shots late in the game. It does things that can be concerning. And I'm sure once we get to playoff basketball, this was my takeaway from Phoenix, once we get to playoff basketball, Quinn Snyder's going to have counter to that. You've seen it in past playoff performances how Quinn has these game plans that can throw teams off kilter and off of their main thing. They can show multiple outlooks when it comes to the postseason. So be prepared. Don't be surprised if the casuals decide to start talking smack about the Utah Jazz if they go down 10-8 early in the first quarter on Saturday or Monday. Be prepared. and Just take it in stride. The other thing that happened around the league that I want to address just off the top concerns more of that seeding and what Denver has in the loss of Jamal Murray. Obviously, terrible situation for Jamal Murray, having seen what he's done in the playoffs, what that team was starting to do with Aaron Gordon. I don't think it's as massive of a loss as it might be considered to the outside. I read Kevin Pelton over at ESPN. Much of the concern has to be how they play in those non-Jokic minutes. Well, that's an opportunity for Michael Porter Jr. to take more shots, to have more creation. He's done it on a fine efficiency. Denver isn't completely lost, especially with what they have with Jokic. The loss of Murray's a bummer, but it's not completely curtains for that team. More on that with Amin El Hassan. As always, five stars, nice reviews, that's all I ask of you. Make sure you let other people know that you're listening to the podcast. Or on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, everywhere you get podcasts, find us Round Ball Roundup. Amin El Hassan, Levitard Show, Sirius XM, and Cinephobe, his Bad Movies podcast with Zach Harper. We're going to talk about a really bad movie in Gotti, which I just find completely maddening. So we'll get to bad movies with Amin, but also we'll touch on what he saw from that Jazz Suns game, can there be causes for concern? And, of course, we've got to ask him, how did he get into this mess? How did he start out in basketball? His story, how he arrived on your Twitter timeline, at Darth Amin, he explains it. Please enjoy Amin El Hassan. 
When it comes time to move, it's always a hassle. Loading everything in the truck, hoping the priceless antique from your mother doesn't break, and trying to juggle the kids and dog in the middle of it all is enough to drive anyone crazy. But it doesn't have to be that way. The friendly, background-checked movers at Bailey's Moving and Storage have the expertise to move your family across town or even around the world. So when it's time to move, think Bailey's Moving and Storage. Call today at 801-218-2640 or check them out online at baileysallied.com. I'm going to try and make it quick. Uh, I was I was born in Sudan. I moved here when I was four months old. I lived here until I was eight years old. When I was eight, I moved back to Sudan. And I lived there for the next six years. And when you're in Sudan, especially at that time, this is obviously pre-internet, even pre-proliferation of cable and satellite television, whatever you can get your hands on from somewhere else that's, that's in English, like, you, you get it. I must have watched. There's a, a reason I love Star Wars is because I had Star Wars on tape. So it's not like I was watching the latest episodes of Doogie Howser because I just didn't have access to that stuff. So I was just watching Star Wars over and over again. And so one of those things that makes its way from abroad that gets in your hands is, I believe it was NBA Superstars Volume 2 or something like that. And so that was one of those tapes I watched a lot. And then I started playing basketball. And and then when I was 14, I moved back to, to New York. And so then now you're playing, and you're playing with people that are a lot better, obviously, and you're, uh, you're also uh, privy to watching games whenever you want or, and all that. And so that was kind of like how I caught the bug of basketball to start with. When did you realize it wasn't going to be on the playing side that you would be in the NBA? probably like when i was 17 or 16 like i just like i i gotten good enough to be to hold my own on the playground right and then i remember i like i think it was basketball tryouts and it was like you know i i, I was like i'm a rebounder da, 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 and then like i'm going against a six seven dude who's ended up uh playing for navy and then he played, like, professionally in Spain and played for the Senegalese national team. But it's like when you play against someone like that, you realize, like, yeah, this, this ain't good. And he's a better shooter than I am. It's like, ah, like, I got to bring something to the table that he can't do as well. And that's when you realize, okay, maybe, maybe it ain't for me. But I never, I never thought there was anything else. You know, like, the, if I went to high school, me, and I told them the life that I've led, I'm like, you're you're full of it. There's no way. There's no way this happened to you, you know. But it, at the time, you just didn't know. I mean, I, I I look at kids nowadays, and in many ways, they're lucky because they can see people who didn't play do all these things, either be on the media side or be on the front office side or on the coaching side or whatever it is, to be involved in this game um, and be meaningfully, gainfully employed doing this. I didn't know anything like that. I new players and I knew coaches who used to be players and that was it like that's all you really knew that was a dash of hope when I saw oh my goodness Tyrell Corbin can dribble with his left hand and I can't that <laughs> it's over for me and it's that, not that's as, how you knew yeah that's how I knew I mean also being five six didn't help being a better soccer player than a basketball player didn't help uh, either but with the jazz being here they were the big team in town so yeah. you wanted to be on the jazz but that didn't end up happening, and it was all uh, all in on the media portion for me. You you went the front office route as well in, yeah. in seeing a little bit of the basketball ops side yeah. of things. 
how did you get into that? What was the work that you had to put in to get into the Phoenix Suns? So when I was in college, I was going to college to be an engineer, and uh, you know, I didn't necessarily like it, but I thought that's what people did in college. You took something so that you'd get a good job and you'd work for 50 years and retire and you know all the trappings of corporate America life. And no one likes their job. That's I literally thought everyone just hates their job. That's this is how life goes. And um, when I was in college, uh, one morning on a Saturday, my roommate woke me up because there was a job fair. Hawks were hiring, and I I told them in not too many kind words to get out of my room. And Saturday morning in college, so you know, I, it's not like I was up studying the night before. But uh, he persisted, and finally he said the words, "Come on." Who knows? You might get to go to some games for free. And so I thought oh, that would be interesting. I, you know, I'd, I'd like to do that. And so I ended up going and there were about 500 people showed up and they hired six. And me and my roommate were two of them. And it was as entry level as it gets. It was field marketing, which is basically a glorified street team. You went, you set up like this little carnival thing with shoot, you know, shoot three of these and win tickets to a game. Hey, hold up your hand. This is like the Kimbe Matumbo's hand size. This is Steve Smith's shoe size and stuff like that. Oh, one of those things. Set it up at a mall on like a Thursday night, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Sunday night. We take it down. And then the next weekend we do it again at a different mall. And so as I'm doing this and I'm doing this just because I'm like, oh, every once in a while they, they slide us tickets for free. I'm getting to know people working. I'm like, wait you do this for a living, like a full-time job? Like, yeah, I work in the marketing department. I'm like, what'd you go to school for? And, you know, they went, some of them went sports management. Some of them were just like, I had a communications degree or whatever. And to me, it was like groundbreaking that I thought everyone who worked, first of all, I, I was not aware of the apparatus around the team, right? The different departments. Second of all, I thought everyone who worked for a team was either a former player or the son of a player, or son of a coach, or son of the owner, like, you know, or related somehow. There was nobody who walked in off the street to do this stuff. So that's when I'm like, I, I think I want, uh, this is an opportunity. I want to try and do this. So the next year we got promoted to in arena staff. So now I'm starting to see the team. I'm around the team. I'm getting to know people. I'm, I'm asking questions. And then I resolve myself, like, this is what I want to do for a living. I want to work at basketball ops. And I've always been someone who had been knowledgeable relative to i guess the stand the average fan of the day remember this is very early internet so you like the things that are available to us now like salaries wasn't really that easily available you have to really dig and find out and keep track of stuff i was one of my first of my friend group to read news stories that were from the local newspapers chris morris doesn't want to play for the the jazz anymore i was reading the salt lake tribune writing about that, not like a recap on SportsCenter, not, not an Associated Press kind of blurb. I was reading full stories with quotes and stuff like that because I found these weird websites that would allow you access to all these newspapers that were just now beginning to put their stuff on the Internet, on the web. So um, I advanced through that. I realized this is what I want to do. I transfer out of Georgia Tech. I go to Arizona State and because I had a really good grad program. So I thought if I go to undergrad, then that'll get me into the grad program. And, wh and while I'm there, I get a copy of the collective bargaining agreement. I start reading because one of the things was why, well, I, it wasn't actually while I was there. It was years earlier. It was when I was in Atlanta. I got a copy of the collective bargaining agreement because I wanted to understand why certain trades could happen and certain ones couldn't and all that stuff. So I won't say I 
became an expert, but I familiarized myself with it as a document. Uh, well, actually, as a book is what it was. It was like a hefty book that big. So um, I get to Arizona State now like I'm a man determined. I burn through everything. Uh, I Right before graduation, I get an internship with the Knicks in basketball ops. So I'm from New York. I'm like, this is a dream come true. I'm going to save the Knicks. I'm going to be the local kid does good or whatever, right? And while I was there, two things happened. One is I learned why the Knicks are bad. <laughs> yeah. It has, it has very little to do with the people on the floor, even the people in the front office, and it go, extends beyond that. But the other thing I learned was, like, a lot of the stuff I just didn't know. You you begin to find out, like, oh, you think you're smart. You think you're the one that everyone turns to for answers, and you show up in this environment, and you meet people working, and you're like, oh, you had no idea how any of this works. And, it, and I said, in my mind, it, it, would, it has to be like someone – who was a star high school player and a star player in college and doesn't get drafted, goes to the G League and, and is a star in the G League. And then you go to get an like training camp call up and then you begin to realize, oh, that's what NBA players look like. Yeah, I'm not that, right? I'm I'm nowhere near as good as that. Uh, but luckily for me, it wasn't a physical thing, it was a mental thing. So it was just learning. Okay, teach me these things. So I'm learning. End of that. Internship ends. I go back to grad school to ASU, and while I'm there, I get an internship with the Suns in basketball ops, and then that turned into a job, and and the rest was history. And so I did that uh, for six years in Phoenix. Altogether, I, I tell people I have like a decade of NBA experience, but it's that counts like three years of of being in Atlanta of just figuring out that this was even a job. Three years of street team that, and you see a lot well, of stuff. One, on that. one year of street team. Okay, two, year, right. two years of in the arena. I like I, there's, a, there's a difference. <laughs> okay, I was gonna say three years of street team. That's a lot that's too much, on one yeah. person. <laughs> I don't know if uh, I don't know how you stuck through that to get to where you are right now. Well, well, I mean, again, like it sounds dumb. It's because they gave us tickets to go to the game. I mean, it's yeah. Atlanta. So uh, remember, well, before we started recording, I made a joke to you about how some crowds look like a COVID crowd and some crowds look like just like Atlanta on a, on a Tuesday. Right. Uh, but so it was like that, like, and it wasn't like, Oh, Hey, you get tickets to this other crappy. Uh, I remember like having four tickets to Mavs Hawks when Steve Nash and Dirk were all stars, like five rows off the floor and I couldn't give them away. Like who wants to come with me? And I was like, ah, it's on a Wednesday. I'm like, it's the, they won 55 games last year. Let's go watch this game. But, for me, that's all it was. It's like, yeah, like I want to go watch games for free and, you know, and be in this, and you know, a little bit of, you know, money on the side or whatever. And then being, once I got inside, I was like, oh, I began to discover things. And then when I, after that first year, when I got into the arena, that's when things took off because now I'm getting to know coaches and now I'm getting to know players and now I'm getting to know um you know, uh, uh, like front office people. And um, that allowed me to kind of see a lot, even though I wasn't maybe necessarily doing a lot, but I was seeing, I was watching, I was taking notes, and I knew kind of like, okay, this is how things go. And that helped me when I went to go get my Nick job. One of the things they told me later was like, yeah, part of the reason we hired you because you had experience. We knew you weren't going to be like, oh, my God, is that so-and-so, is that John Starks? And, you know, I'm not going to be like that. I'm going to behave in a way like I've been there before because I had been there before. And when I got my son's job, it was the same thing. I was like, yeah, because you work for the Knicks in basketball ops. So this, you know, you, you kind of know some of the things that we're going to ask you to do. 
And, and and ultimately, like for anyone who's looking for a career in sports, that's why like some people I hear, yeah, I can't do ticket sales. No, you do whatever's available if you're this is the first step in your journey. You don't get to say, Oh no, I, I need to be working on the draft. Like, well, no, it doesn't work that way. Unless Unless you have a career, a playing career that we don't know about, I'll go. I'll pull up Basketball Reference right now and pull you up, and maybe I could be wrong. Yeah, that's right. Here it is. You played thirty games with the uh, the Anaheim Amigos or the San Diego Conquistadors, right? But absent a playing career, a meaningful playing career, this is the path that we all have to walk through. Yeah, it is. It's a weird and winding road for everybody mm-hmm. in in how they figure things out. When you're with the Suns. Did you know basketball was going this direction to where it is currently? Tom Haverstow wrote about this in, in Troop is the only yeah. reason I bring it up. They were so advanced in what they were doing. Did you know in the moment that this is where everything was heading? So I I got there I got there kind of like after things had taken off for them. Uh and we knew that's how we wanted to play. I knew from working with the Knicks because I got that's when I got introduced to analytics and the idea of again things that are we don't even call analytics anymore like pace yeah. and your offensive rating that's just we all accept that like that's how you measure basketball it's not analytics that's just you look it up right um, but those things back then were what rebound percentage what do you mean it was all coming out of this book called Basketball on Paper by a man named Dean Oliver. Uh, so I read that book and I began to understand those things and I began to understand things about the Suns who at the time, 0405, this is when they won 62 games and they were the, you know, the bell of the ball and all that stuff. And we were realizing like, oh yeah, there's certain, if you're a talented team, that was, I remember the first thing I realized, if you're a talented team, it probably behooves you to have more possessions in your game. Because if I basically say, hey, uh, let's play darts. Each of us gets one dart, and the closest to the middle wins. There is a chance that you could get, you've never played darts, but get lucky and whoop, one in the middle. Hey, I win, right? Now I say, okay, here's 100 darts. The ones closest to the pin on average, that's the guy that wins. Well, if you've never played, if you're terrible at this, that one lucky one will show itself to be lucky. How? By the other 99 that didn't hit the board or hit the top of the board or whatever. Similarly in basketball, if I'm not a talented team, I want to limit the possessions because the, the amount of luck in a low-possession game is a lot higher. The more possessions we have, the more your skill is going to be apparent and my lack of skill is going to be apparent, and so that benefits you. So in New York, we were realizing that about the Suns is that they play fast, but part of the reason they play fast is because they're good. They're good enough to play fast. And so when I got to Phoenix, I kind of already knew some of the tenets. But then they started to explain to me, like, this is what we value. And uh, I then start to put to work kind of the things I learned analytically and the things I learned about how to use basic software. Again, at the time, there was no SQL or any of that for NBA teams. It was like Excel. But scraping things off of websites in Excel and then running them through a predetermined formula, like that was revolutionary in the NBA at the time. It was revolutionary in Phoenix for sure. Uh, But it uh, helped us identify talent that maybe wasn't as, you know, conventional wisdom would say, oh, yeah, he's really good. It was kind of like hidden gems and things like that. And that helped. Did we know we were ahead of the curve? No, we just thought we were different. 
We thought, oh, this is how we're going to get ahead. I never imagined a day where everyone will be playing like us. It just that didn't occur to me at at, one, at any point. So what do you make of it? What do you make of the way that that basketball has gone now? Well, uh, part of it, and you know, I think in Tom's article, Mike D'Antoni does a good job of verbalizing a lot of that. Right, the idea that yeah, it's nice to know that we were right or we were ahead of the curve, that we influenced the game, um, because people were saying that we'll never win that way. But the reasons were very thin. It's like, oh, because no one playing fast wins, right? They say, what, what like a bad shot, right? What's a bad shot? Uh, we say a good shot is what? If you're shooting a shot that you're known to make and you're open, you're not defended, that's a good shot. Why does it matter if it came with 15 seconds left on the clock or five seconds left on the clock or whatever? So the, the wisdom in the NBA at the time was like, no, no, you keep moving it around. Why? The guy's wide open with 20 seconds on the shot clock. His feet is set. It's not like Shaq shooting a three-pointer. That's Rajah Bell. He's one of the best shooters in the league. So that's not a bad shot. And I was on Rajah Bell's podcast with uh, Logan Murdoch like a couple months ago, and Rajah told a story about him taking a shot, missing it, and saying, my bad. And uh, Coach D'Antoni said, no, no, that's the shot. That's how we want to play. That was You shoot threes, right? Like, yeah. Were you, were you off balance? No. Were you defended? No. So why is that a bad shot? Because you missed it? Because the number on the clock was... So anyways, point being is we, 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 we knew how we wanted to play. And we thought this is the thing that gives us the best chance of success. But people, because they hadn't seen it before, automatically assumed it wouldn't work. And then you start... you know, We never quite got there, but you start seeing other teams do it. When Miami won their first championship, people don't know this. Eric Spolstra thanked Mike D'Antoni. He texted Mike D'Antoni saying, thank you. Because they basically did a lot of things. They, call, they called it pace and space. That's seven seconds or less. They just gave it a different name. They call it positionless basketball. That's us putting Amari Stoudemire at the five and Sean Marion at the four. That's all it is. Like It's, it's small ball and it's fast. And, and we're, we're depending on skill over physical might. And so to see them do it and people still weren't buying in. And then Golden State obviously came by and well, San Antonio did it because we the thing that we always like to say is that we beat San Antonio so hard, we made them change the way they play basketball. They went from post-ups to pick and rolls and letting like Tony and Manu and Kawhi be their offense. Like that's cuz of the way we beat them, not because Pop, you know, had a had a dream one day of saying, "Hey, maybe we should play basketball this way." No, it's cuz we we swept them in 2010 and they saw the future. Um, and then Golden State obviously is the most unabashed version of they did it even better than we did. They they took it to lengths that we never even imagined. Uh, but it's it's nice to know that we started that on some level. And it helped uh, Golden State to have Steph Curry and Clay Thompson in their back. Oh, you gotta have talent. Sure. That's the name of the game. It doesn't matter yeah. what you're running. Like like look, Phil Jackson runs a triangle with Shaq and Kobe, and they win three championships, right, and two more without Shaq. Uh, Kurt Rambis goes to Minnesota, runs a triangle, they win 15 games. Like, you got to have talent. Definitely. And that's why it's so interesting to watch the Jazz do what they're doing now with not only incorporating that sort of seven seconds or less, challenging what you think of as a bad shot, but they yeah. also have that huge rim protector in Rudy Gobert. How have you seen what they're trying to do with not only all the shooters and talent that they have, around Donovan, around Rudy, but also having that post 
guy, yeah. not not necessarily a post guy, a rim runner in Rudy Gobert. Right. So, to me, what made Utah special during this era, right, the Donovan Rudy era, we'll call it, is that they're an elite defensive team. That's the number one thing. I don't care what they're doing on offense. If you talk about what the identity of this, what's the culture built around, is defense in Utah. Last year, last season, I should say, we should stop saying last year until COVID's over, but last season, there was a stage where Utah not only wasn't elite defensively, they weren't even good. They were average to below average, and they lost their way. And uh, that continued in the bubble, and it obviously continued in the playoffs. And then at the start of the season, it continued a little, and then the light bulb went off, and elite Utah defense came back. And that's the moment everything skyrocketed. On the offensive end, though, I heard Quinn Snyder talk about this. He said last year, right before the pandemic, they had a coach's meeting talking about we need to shoot more threes. We need to play faster. We need to shoot more threes. And they started to do that, and then the pandemic happened, and it kind of threw everything uh, for a loop. And so when they came into this year, that was like the number one priority for them on the offensive end is we have to play this way. And so what kind of surprise took everyone by surprise in january was actually something that started as an idea that they wanted to implement almost nine or ten months earlier which is pretty pretty incredible when you think about it um but i think that's what's borne out is what you're seeing is this is a team that is one of the best defensive teams as it usually is year by year and then now they've had they have an offense that not only plays aggressively but also takes advantage of the talents that they have, right? Because it's not Donovan Mitchell and everybody waiting. It's Joe Ingles. It's Boyan Bogdanovich. It's Rudy Gobert as a rim runner, right? It's Derek Favors as a rim runner. And then uh, finally, the missing piece that they acquired last year but didn't really fit in was Mike Conley. But you see Mike Conley a year in, a lot more comfortable with the offense, a lot more comfortable with his teammates. Okay, that's the Mike Conley that we saw in Memphis. And that is, I think, part of what's pushed them to the top of the West, top of the league, really. Should there be any concern from Jazz fans watching the way that Phoenix attacked Rudy late or even Washington this week where Mm -hmm. Russ was going straight at Rudy and taking Mm -hmm. those mid-range jumpers? Should there be concern? There should be concern. There should be concern. It's actually something that we've talked about a lot on NBA radio, Zach Harper and myself. Uh, is the concept that, look, Rudy Gobert is an elite rim protector, right? But the way the game is going in terms of the personnel on the floor and the style of play by more and more teams, kind of like what we talked about to start the podcast, I can take this dude who's elite at this thing and put him on the place on the floor that he's not as elite at. And once I've done that, I've not only taken him from his comfort zone, but I've destabilized your entire team defense. And so on a night-to-night basis, not, not a concern because tomorrow you'll play someone else who either doesn't know how to do that or can't do it, don't have the personnel to do it. But once we get to the playoffs and teams, first of all, are better, second of all, are sitting around in game planning. They're thinking about all the ways they can take Rudy Gobert from under the basket and either put him somewhere where he's uncomfortable or put him somewhere where he's not going to go out there and so we've got open shots here. That's going to be a concern. And so to me, that's one of the things – I, you know, I do a weekly radio hit with Spencer Checkets, and we talk about that a lot. And Spencer asked me, like, how do you feel this week? I said, look, 
It doesn't change much for me. It's a it's a great team. But unfortunately, you know, Achilles, the original Achilles, was a great warrior, except he had this one little part on his foot, like, uh, just don't touch him there. Well, that's where I was like, oh, okay. And so you get, you know, Hector gets the, the intel, like, yeah, right there. Uh, got it. Gets his bow and arrow. Where did you know, shoot him in the head? You gotta shoot him in the shoulder, in the heart. He shoots him in the one place that we know that's a problem. So until the Jazz show, and they may not show in the regular season because they don't want to, but until they show a way to be able to answer that Hector's arrow to their Achilles heel, that should be a concern for everybody. They might not be concerned internally because they already figured out what the fix is. But for those of us on the outside, we're watching what we see night to night when Dorian Finney-Smith says, I knew I would have a good night because Rudy Gobert was matched up on me. That's that's concerning. That's concerning because that wasn't um, Jamal Murray. That wasn't Luka Doncic. That wasn't Kevin Durant. That wasn't a, a, an elite scorer saying that. That's an NBA role player who was not who's in the NBA for his defense, not his offense. Saying that, that's concerning. And but again, they might have addressed it internally and know. Hey, once we get to, you know, round one when we're matched up with the San Antonio Spurs, whatever, we're not going to let that happen. Is Chris Paul just the only Hector, though? Who are the teams that can can beat the Jazz in attacking their defense? I think, oh, man, all right. So I think you start with the Lakers just because they're the defending champ. If they're healthy, look, yes, they're, yeah. they're, they're, just that, they're good enough, and their two best players both can do that. They both can operate in mid-range and do that, and especially with talking about Anthony Davis. If they switch and make him the five, now Rudy really has a problem. Right. Um, I think you got to go with the Nuggets, even with the Jamal Murray injury, because to me, it wasn't Jamal Murray, even though he had great offensive output. The reality is it's Jokic who allows who pulls Rudy out and allows Murray and whoever else to go nuts. If, if Jokic isn't out there and occupying the time of Rudy Gobert, then it's hard for me to imagine any of the other stuff happening. So I put Denver on that list. I put the Clippers on that list because same thing. You're talking about Kawhi Leonard pull up 18-footer. He's really good at that. He's one of the best in the game for mid-range. Paul George is pretty good too. Uh, and then obviously, um, oh, let me see. I don't. I think. I think those might be the the only teams in the West. For me, Phoenix. Yes, Chris Paul is, but I have question marks about a team that is populated mostly by people who haven't been in the playoffs, right? One of the reasons why I have confidence in Denver and the Clippers and the Lakers is because that those units, those groups, have been in the playoffs multiple times. They know what to expect. They know what the show is about, pretty much. Phoenix, I'm talking about Chris Paul, Jay Crowder, Dario Saric for a, a cup of coffee in Philly, uh, Etwan Moore for a cup of coffee in, um, in New Orleans. So really, I'm talking about Paul and Crowder, and Crowder is not a guy who could take over a series. He's he's going to play his role. So we're talking about Chris Paul, but Devin Booker and Aiton and Cam Johnson and Mikael Bridges and all their real contributors for them, first time at the rodeo. It's not unlike what happened to Dallas last year. A lot of people were excited about Dallas, the chance against the Clippers. I said no shot, and it's, it had nothing to do with the Clippers. It's just okay. Who is their team? Okay, Luca. First time at the rodeo. Uh, 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 Brunson, first time at the rodeo. Kleber, first time at the rodeo. Uh, Porzingis, first time at the rodeo. 
Who are their vets? Well, uh, okay, they've got Tim Hardaway Jr. All right, that's nice. But Tim Hardaway Jr. is not going to lead you against a higher-seeded team you know, to victory and overcome for all of this lack of experience. So for me, I don't put the Suns on that list, not from a talent standpoint, but just I don't think the, uh, the experience is there. And then the last team, I would say Portland, but they're so bad defensively, I just can't believe. I just I cannot believe they'll, they'll be good enough. They're all in, the Jazz. all in offensively, it seems. They are, but, I mean, you can be not great defensively and pull off an upset. I don't think you can be literally the third worst defense in the history of the NBA and pull off an upset. I just, I don't believe that. Mm-hmm. What else has stood out from just watching the West, seeing how the Lakers have managed to still have a good defense with LeBron and AD not here uh, as the Jazz will be taking them on this Saturday? Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the things that they hung their hat on from the start of last season from when Frank Vogel came in. So we're going to be a defensive team. And I'll admit I was one of the people I rolled my eyes. I said, if you if LeBron doesn't buy in defensively, how can you be good defensively? But to their credit, they did, and he did. And, uh, and they built that identity, uh, much in the same way that we talked about Utah having, look, first and foremost, we are a defensive outfit. I think the Lakers show up to work every day, and they say, first and foremost, we are a defensive outfit. So the, the lack of AD and LeBron, while a massive blow to their ability to generate offense, doesn't impact the day-to-day of the defense as much, not because those guys aren't great defenders or don't do enough, but because everybody who shows up and plays there understands this is what we're about. And I'm not kind of olaying my way to AD, like, oh, this way. We're, we're defending. We are, we are guarding and we are on a string and we're communicating and we are executing our defensive principles. And I think that's what they've been able to do in this time with some blips here and there where it just kind of falls apart because at the end of the day, having to defend hard and then also not being able to say, okay, LeBron, take it away, score some points for us. That's hard. You know, like you've got to go back and, and score like Kuzma who's defended. Well, he's got to go back and be the, the main scorer for this team on the other end of the ball. That's hard. It takes a lot out of you. So, Sometimes, you know, you have your slippage. But I think, you know, they showed it in the Nets game and they showed it um, against the Hornets the other night, even though that's a team that's also dealing with injuries. They'll, they'll defend well enough to keep themselves in a game. And then at the end of the game, it's, it's anybody's game at that point because, again, limited possessions allows luck to come in a lot more handy. All right, that does it for the basketball conversation. I want to get you on on bad movies. Cinephobe, okay. Cinephobe the podcast. Uh, I listen and I watch Gotti almost every six months. But what landed you? And and I want to talk about Gotti with you in just why a moment. You, why do you watch? No, let's start. Why do you watch Gotti every six months? Because this is an insane movie. Have Have you seen John Travolta trying to uh, do a truly offensive Italian impression the entire, oh, that's, the entire time? That, that was the note. Uh, since you listen to the podcast, you know this. But the note we made was this is, you know, prejudicial against Italian people until we realize, wait a second, John Travolta's Italian. He is. He is, yeah. (laughs) What do you do? Like, oh, I don't really have a leg to stand on on this, but yeah, it's... Pitbull's not Italian? Why is that the soundtrack for the entire movie? I mean, why why is it... It's a period piece, and they're playing Pitbull songs in, like, the 80s and 90s. It's amazing. It is amazing. I guess, like, if you have Pitbull signed on to do the soundtrack, you... You kind of got to go with it, right? But paying for the whole discography just yeah, to no, 
just to use it as my soundtrack for this movie? In retrospect, a, a poor choice of resources. <laughs> <laughs> it also, for me, uniquely perfect for the time, for the time that we're in, in right now. Mm. We are uh, glorifying this guy who continues to get caught by the police, goes to trial, becomes Teflon Don yeah. uh, in the papers, and he just appears to be a bad criminal getting caught, but not to the point where he's going to jail. Yeah, he's he's like there's a reason why the mafia did it this way for a hundred and two hundred years, however long, however many years they did it. It's like this guy's like, no, I'm gonna be brash. I'm gonna let everyone know I am a mob boss. It's like, yeah, you're going to jail, and the whole uh, Genovese family is going down too. It's like, yeah, it took him like five years to destroy something that existed literally for decades. No, it's it's amazing. Um, it's an amazing story, like the actual story is amazing, but the movie is even more amazing. We had, I don't know if you listened to, we had a special edition episode with a guy who worked on, he worked on the movie, got it. Whoa. He gave us all the inside scoop. So we, we, it turned out he's a listener. And when he heard the Gotti episode, that's when he came out of the shadows and said, I got to tell you guys this stuff. So I think we put it on our Patreon, patreon.com slash count the dings, by the way, uh, <laughs> where you could get all the exclusive content, including special edition episodes like the. Uh, St. Patrick's Day episode we did and the Valentine's Day episode we did. All right. But anyways, uh, point being, he's like, first of all, he said they ran out of money and the only way they could raise enough money to keep production going was they started selling speaking roles. That's right. Many of the terrible actors you saw are not, in fact, terrible actors. They're merely people who plunked down cash in order to say that they were in Gotti and they had a line. Or lines in some cases, yeah. Like the backups, the backup uh, gangsters are all yes. all paid. The people who spoke, who are clearly not good at this, and if you go to their IMDb and you see either a very light resume or no resume whatsoever, those are all people who paid five, six figures, five to six figures, for the right to be in this movie. How yeah. much did uh, Gotti Jr. pay? Because that guy's a that guy oh, was yeah. amazing. Yeah, no, it's 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 incredible. It is it is so it's a tremendous. It's a tremendous piece of I I wanted to say art, but it's definitely not art. It's <laughs> it's something to behold. How about that? And it's definitely at the very least listen to the episode which is free on Cinephobe for Gotti cuz we I mean, it's we're crying laughing at points. Has your watching of all these bad movies been able to make you appreciate good movies now what has this project allowed you to do in, in other things it's it's rotten it's made my brain rotten um first of all there are a lot of movies that aren't necessarily bad but maybe aren't like schindler's list right right and so now when i watch them though i notice this concept of exposition which is something that we go back to a lot on cinephobe Exposition, if you don't know, is in movies, um, if uh, let's say there's a scene where me and JP are supposed to go into the store and buy this, all the soap detergent, because we're going to run a heist that involves a lot of bubbles, right? Exposition is when me and JP are walking in and we're talking about, okay, so we're going to go and we're going to get all the soap detergent. Because we're going to need a lot of bubbles, right? I have to explain that out loud because uh, otherwise the audience wouldn't know why we're going to the, the mini mart or whatever or Costco or whatever. 
Good movies find a way to do exposition within the flow of the story and make it look natural. Bad movies just almost like screeching halt on the brakes and a character will come up and tell you exactly what's happening. So we did Batman and Robin, which came out in 1997. The George Clooney Batman, if you're wondering, with Arnold Schwarzenegger as Mr. Freeze. And the opening scene is like Batman and Robin in the Batmobile and the the monitor comes up and Commissioner Gordon says, there's a new villain. His name is Mr. Freeze. He freezes things. He's down at the museum right now. He's taking hostages. You got to help us. That's exposition, right? They didn't know how else to introduce this premise. And they said, ah, I'll just blurt it out. Doing all of these movies and doing these podcasts makes me notice exposition all the time now. I cannot ignore it. It's there. It's in my face all the time. And sometimes it happens in good movies. And, and that's a shame. The thing that I notice for some of the movies that you you guys review on Cinephobe is that sometimes one of the bad movies will reference an infinitely better movie in the genre, and that yep. is a terrible thing to do because now I'm thinking about the better movie as opposed to thinking about what I'm watching right now. Awful mistake that many of the movies that you guys review do every time. The name of the game is suspension of disbelief. That's ultimately what every piece of fiction is, right? We know you know that there's no guy who's going to destroy 50% of the population when he snaps his fingers. That doesn't exist. But we hope that like, if we make the story compelling enough, you will willingly suspend your disbelief and accept like there's no one who's flying, there's no guy with a metal suit that shoots lasers out the hands. None of this exists but I'll suspend it for the sake of the story. The worst thing you can do is break suspension of disbelief by calling attention to how terrible your movie is by comparing it to something else. It would be like going out on a date and saying, yeah, it's like, you know, me and, uh, you know, uh, uh, Brad Pitt. A lot of people, like, can't tell us apart. All the person who's dating you is going to realize is, like, you look nothing like Brad Pitt. And, like, wow, I really wish I was going out on a date with Brad Pitt instead of, this guy who's digging in his teeth and farting. <laughs> That's what these bad movies do often. What is on tap for Cinephobe as you're starting to get into more themes coming up? Right. So so uh, I'm glad you mentioned that. So this entire calendar year of 2021, we've decided rather than just go randomly by the picks of the different hosts, we're going by themes. Each month is a theme. January was Nicolas Cage month. February was Black History Month. Uh, March was Arnold Schwarzenegger month. That's why we did Batman and Robin. April, the month we're in right now, is Oscar month. We're doing all these Oscar movies that had Oscar winners in them. So not Oscar winning movies. Don't worry. It's still bad movies. Uh, this week we did uh, Envy, which stars Ben Stiller and Jack Black and Amy Poehler, but also stars Rachel Weisz, who's an Academy Award winner, and Christopher Walken, who's an Academy Award winner. Uh, and so that's the theme for April. You know what I'm going to do? Oh, I can't do it. I can't, I can't oh, reveal what the theme is. For, oh, they'll kill, you know what? Let me, I'm going to look it up. They might change it, but tentatively. This is an exclusive. I'm giving it to you guys here. And I'm hoping, as a result, listeners of this podcast will come subscribe, rate, review, Cinephobe, wherever you get podcasts. Because this is, this is pretty big that I'm revealing this. A full two weeks, I believe. This is what I'll do. I'll, I'll give an Easter egg. The theme for next month is an actor who is responsible for 
one of, if not the biggest flops in the history of filmmaking. And second hint, that flop of a movie, we've already reviewed it on Cinephobe. So now we're doing other bad movies in his repertoire next month. Waterworld? Well, we haven't done Kevin Costner. And, and while Waterworld was one of the most expensive movies and it was a flop in that regard, it still made money. No, this movie that we did, okay. that we reviewed, was a massive flop, not because it cost a lot, which it did, but also because it made almost nothing. I okay. mean, it was pitiful. That's well, a lot of Easter go. eggs. I just That's a lot, a lot right there. If you're listening to Round Ball Roundup, the crossover, the Venn diagram, I hope it's two circles, Cinephobe and Round Ball Roundup. Make sure to subscribe, rate, review, find the Patreon, count the dings for Amin El Hassan, Lebitard Show, Sirius XM. Thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, thanks for having me. Thank you.